Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. Glad to have all of you with us for Political Rewind today. I'm Bill Nygut. We have an awful lot to talk about, so uh, I'm going to get right to it. Uh, uh, First of all, I'm joined by Kevin Riley, the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. He's with us on most Thursdays, and we're very glad to have Kevin with us today. Kevin, you doing all right? I sure am, uh, Bill. It's great to be with you and um, just trying to get a few technical things sorted out uh, right here as the show goes on. But just like everyone at GPB, we're we're improvising at the AJC as well. <laughs> we all are. As a matter of fact, it's one of, right now we're having a technical issue. Uh, your uh, health and medical reporter, Ariel Hart, is uh, waiting to join us. We're having some problems with the uh, phone line uh, that we want to use to bring her in. So uh, Sam Burmis Dawes, Tom Faust are working right now to uh, try to get uh, Ariel on the line to be part of our phone conversation. In a minute, we're going to talk to two of the leaders at Phoebe Putney Health Systems down in Albany, uh, where they have had um, one of the real hotspots there in Doherty County in terms of the uh, coronavirus. And we'll introduce them in just a minute. Before we do, as we like to do every day, I'm going to update you on the numbers in Georgia. Um, And even before I do that, let me say that we've got some big political news that we will be discussing later in the show. Of course, Bernie Sanders has now dropped out of the presidential race, which means that Joe Biden is essentially on path to accept the Democratic nomination. And we will get to that later in the show today, as well as a few other important political stories that are breaking. But as I said, let's Take a look at the latest numbers coming from the uh, Department of Public Health, Georgia Department of Public Health. Uh, They're now reporting, as of 7 o'clock last night, that we have 10,204 confirmed cases of COVID-19. That's up 1,048 cases in just 24 hours. It's up 2,600 cases in 48 hours. And for the first time they're reporting that there are confirmed cases of COVID-19 in every one of Georgia's 159 counties. Of course, one of the stories here in Georgia and across the country has been that uh, the virus has uh, spread more widely to rural areas across the country than some had initially believed, given there's more sparse population density. Uh, But in fact, more than two-thirds of the country and it now has, more than two-thirds of the rural areas in the country now report cases of uh, COVID-19. For the first time, we're also seeing figures on a breakdown by race, which has become increasingly important as we're learning that the virus has been particularly pernicious in African-American communities. And we we ought to talk about that as we move forward today. (coughs) Excuse me. Here in Georgia, the starting point ought to be that 63% of the cases, we don't know the the racial identity of the people who have the virus. So of those we do know, though, uh, African-Americans represent 21%, uh, whites 15%, and then a very tiny percentage of of others. Uh, And then finally, we've had 370 deaths. Uh, in the last 24, it's up 22 in 24 hours. 
and 77 in the last 48 hours, so a total in Georgia of 370 deaths. All right, all of that said, um, I do want to turn, with your help, Kevin, to the hot spot in southwest Georgia that we've all been paying an awful lot of attention to. And we're very pleased uh, to be able to welcome two, uh, two people who have been incredibly busy, along with their entire teams down there, in dealing with this emergency. Scott Steiner, Steiner the CEO of uh, Phoebe Putney Health Systems, and Dr. Stephen Kitchen, the chief medical officer down there. Thank you both for being here. Uh, I'm going to sort of say to you guys, I'll throw out as a starting point, and I know Kevin's going to want to jump in, uh, a couple of questions. And I, I guess I'm going to leave it to you to decide which one of you uh, should answer. But so, well, maybe I do know, Dr. Kitchen, you might be the right person to answer the first one. You're, you've been very transparent, this, the uh, hospital has, in releasing figures on the cases you're dealing with. Can you, where do you stand today? Are you seeing any flattening of the curve at this point? Are the cases slowing down? Is the need for intensive care bed slowing down? Uh, one of you, please address all that for us. Sure. Uh, you know, there's, there's a couple of, of key measures and statistics that we look at each day. You know, we look at the number of patients coming into all of our facilities with signs and symptoms of COVID-19 who, you know, we commonly refer to as a person under investigation. We look at the number of patients who are admitted to our facilities as well as the number of patients who get transferred out. Um, uh, Needless to say, we, we quickly, you know, maxed out the capacity of all of our critical care beds, so we were in a position that we could no longer accommodate those patients within our facilities here. So obviously, uh, many, many of our sister hospitals across the state really, really responded to that and have accepted uh, those patients as well. And what I would say is... <laughs> And I'm always a little reluctant to draw conclusions based on a limited number of data points. But I will tell you, you know, probably over the last five days or so, it's, it's been relatively consistent. Uh, and so we have seen, we've been able to accommodate most of those patients into our facilities and the need to transfer patients out, um, I think, has uh, has begun to trend down again. You know, I'm a little reluctant to draw conclusions from that, but that's what our observations have been over the last five days or so. I think public health officials across the country are a little uh, reticent when it comes to to suggesting that perhaps the uh, the uh, spread of the virus is slowing down a bit. But that is what we're hearing. Uh, out of uh, out of the task force in Washington, uh, we're beginning to see uh, metrics that suggest that the curves may not be quite as extreme as as they initially were thought to be. So, a follow up question, I guess, is: Are you even even though it's it's too early to really have much of a projection on this? Does it appear that down in Albany Doherty County, which is really ahead of all of us on this? Things are, when you say it's become consistent, does that mean you're not seeing as many cases? You're not getting as many positive results? People aren't getting it. How, what does that exactly mean? What I would tell you is this. 
that the number of patients that we admit, if if you add <laughs> the number of patients who are being admitted to our facilities with signs and symptoms of COVID-19, and you add the number of patients we have to transfer out because we don't have capacity, that number has been relatively stable over the last five days or so. What we're also finding is that as testing capability increases, you know, the total number of cases I think is going to, of, uh, is going to continue to go up, but the number of patients who are requiring admission to the hospital appears at this point to be relatively, uh, to be relatively flat. So you would say that's very good news, at least right now. Uh, yes, I think for uh, for right now, we feel like um, our ability to respond to the needs of the community, both in terms of patients who are requiring admission to a general medical floor or to our intensive care unit, seems to be relatively stable. All right. Kevin, you want to, by the way, we should say, Ariel Hart, we have finally established a phone line with you, and we're going to come to you in just a second. But, Kevin, do you want to weigh in here? Yeah, I guess I'd just love to know from either of you, um, as this has played out in your community and and it has gotten national media attention, um, do you feel like the message has gone out to other um, similar communities around the state? uh, And what what is your message to those communities? Hey, Kevin, this is Scott uh, Steiner. I appreciate you and Bill having us on. You know, we've, uh, Dr. Kitchen and our team here, um, one of the things, Bill, you mentioned was the, the transparency of the information. And we've tried to, from the very beginning, uh, to be very transparent. And we've, with a dashboard, with, you know, what the numbers are, positive, negatives, deaths that we've seen, how many are inpatient, outpatient, putting up a testing center, a phone line. So what we tried to do quickly was to, was to, was to not only be transparent, but to do as much as, as we could. Uh, and, and, that be, and, and why we did that is because we wanted others to learn, right? We wanted other communities, uh, especially probably our third day into this, we realized uh, or we knew we were, this, this, wasn't, uh, this wasn't SARS. This, this wasn't H1N1. Uh, this was uh, something very real uh, and, and very impactful. And so by doing that, by being transparent with our numbers, by offering to share policies, procedures, we've sent out our masking protocol to more than 100 different organizations uh, to try to give them a jump start because I, I think ultimately what we were, we were surprised by was the speed, uh, the speed that we went from zero patients to the next day 20, to the next day 40, to the next day 70, and, and with almost half of those being in the ICU. So what we've seen in other communities, uh, rural, small urban, even, even somewhat in, in, in Atlanta or Savannah, is, is the outreach. We've had colleagues call us from all over uh, saying, tell us more. It's not here yet, but we're worried that it can be. Um, yesterday I did a a call on uh, for American College of Healthcare Executives. Over almost a thousand people were on it to learn about, you know, our, to, to hear about our learnings, good or bad. And and that's why we've tried to be as transparent with our information as possible to say, we haven't had every answer and we've stumbled, but we've also got a lot of things right. And to Dr. Kitchen's point, um, where we think we've, we, I wouldn't say things have slowed. 
what I would say is uh, they haven't grown either. But, you know, yesterday we tested more than uh, 200 people, and we're getting back almost 100 positives each and every day. So the virus is very much still in our community uh, as it is in every community. So, um, you know, what we're doing with social distancing and, and, and I, I believe is working, and that's the slowing that we're seeing. But it is by no means uh, in my eyes, and the data doesn't show that, that the curve has bent over. Ariel Hart, uh, first of all, welcome to the show. I'm sorry we had a little technical difficulty, but I'd love for you to jump in uh, if you have questions. Yeah, no, thanks for having me, and and good to talk to you again. Um, So uh, those who haven't been following every minute detail of this, um, do you want to talk a little bit about um, where the most uh, impact has been for you, and I'm thinking especially about ICU. How has your hospital changed? Yeah, Ariel, this is Scott, and I certainly welcome Dr. Kitchen's uh, thoughts. But, you know, today we stand with our, our facilities. We've got 182 pay, uh, positive patients in our three facilities uh, in Worth County, Sumter County, and, and here in Doherty County. Fifty-five of those are in our ICUs, and 44 of those folks are on ventilators. So it's very acute. Uh, Here in Albany, we have normally three ICUs, a medical ICU, a cardiac, and a surgical. Uh, All three of those are now COVID-only ICUs, and we added another ICU. So we've got four uh, COVID-only ICUs, and they're completely full. Um, So that's, again, this is what's made this disease fairly or this virus unique is is the critical nature of it for some segments of our population. As we know, most people will will contract the virus or that contract the virus will recover at home with some and many with mild symptoms and, and a great percentage without them. But this has, for those, we, I, I've been in healthcare for 30 years. I've never seen a virus uh, to create so many critical patients uh, in such a short period of time. And, and so we do, I, I can't remember the last day we had an open ICU bed. If, as soon as a patient is discharged out of the ICU, another one goes in. So it's uh, And I'm guessing that your ICU units were not empty beforehand. So you've, no. got, you've gone from three that used to house completely other patients to four that only have ICU that have COVID patients now. What guys right. you still have other patients? Right. Well we did create a fifth ICU and uh in our perioperative area, of course we've canceled elective surgical procedures so we have the space. Again, in ICU the the space is important that you have suction and, and the oxygen, all those other things, but it's mainly the staff and the doctors that are caring for it. You have the right nurses and doctors. So we created a a fifth ICU that will care for other patient, patients that, that do not have COVID, that are here for trauma, that have a cardiac event. So you add those uh, 10 beds on top of it, and, you know, we're sitting at almost 60 ICU beds where normally we've got, you know, uh, uh, 30, a little bit more 30, than 30. Yeah, 38. Yeah. 38. And, and what's um, that like as caregivers? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll say this um, because I – I make rounds through our intensive care units every day. And, and, you know, you hear this phrase used a lot, and it might seem trite on one hand, but I will tell you it's, it's absolutely borne out. The response by our staff, the physicians, the ICU nurses, the respiratory 
therapist, the pharmacist, everyone involved in the care of patients in our critical care uh, units has been nothing short of remarkable. I mean, they have, um, to say they've risen to the challenge would be an understatement because they are, uh, they are literally putting themselves in harm's way, operating under extraordinarily challenging uh, conditions, wearing PPE, which is not comfortable, trying to, you know, practice all the right safeguards. But at the same time, the, the clinical demands of these patients are, um, are extreme. And they meet that challenge every day, day in, day out. And, um, and, and, you know, there's no question it takes a toll. It takes a physical toll, an emotional toll, but um, the resilience that they demonstrate day in, day out is certainly inspiring to me. And, you know, I, I, I kind of refer to as the sharp end of healthcare and the blunt end. Those people who are providing the care are on the sharp end. I feel like my responsibility as being on the blunt end is to make sure they have the support, the resources, the PPE uh, to be to be successful in that endeavor day in day out. Let me follow up on that, if I might. We hear virtually every day uh, in, in the national news about uh, the shortage of N95 masks for medical workers, the shortage of uh, other protections, uh, gowns, gl- uh, gloves, the like. Um, do are you are you well equipped in those areas? Do you have uh, uh, the N95 mask for everyone? Do you yourself, as a private institution, have to go out in the marketplace and compete? For PPEs that your staff can uh, can uh, wear, or are you getting help from the state, from the federal government on that? Tell us a little bit about that effort. Okay, yeah, Scott. Bill, Scott. Yeah, Scott. Would you like to respond to that? Yeah. So thanks, Bill. You know, from the very beginning, and that that could be a, a blessing in disguise is is that we were early, is we realized we, we had used six months of what we uh, of PPE in, se- in our first seven days. So we knew early on that our burn rate, uh, we were using almost 2,500 N95 masks a day. And and so we got on it early. And I think, again, that was a blessing in disguise because while normal supply chains have dried up and have been, they they just haven't had anything for weeks now, we have gone to those secondary markets. We have worked on deals from vendors, from, uh, um, you know, uh, middlemen, who we would never normally have done that. Uh, we we attempted early on, probably it's been more than uh, two and a half weeks ago, we purchased 500,000, a half a million N95s uh, out of a group out of Mexico. Uh, there were 3M masks, and uh, they were $7 each, uh, $3.5 million, something we normally would pay $0.58 cents for. We felt like we had to do it. If we, we knew if we didn't keep our our employees safe, there would be no one to care for our patients. And Dr. Kitchen and, and, and our entire team, as he said, on the blunt end, we've been focused on having the supplies that they need to do the job safely. So that, that deal, unfortunately, when it was getting ready to ship, interesting, it was shipping out of New York uh, right when New York was was uh, um, you know was was seeing a, a number of cases, and our understanding from the supplier is that 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 shipment was seized by the state of New York, 
and we didn't get it. But we've been, we haven't relied on any one source. We've got 15 irons in the fire as it relates to N95, surgical masks, gowns, isolation uh, uh, equipment. So it's, it, that has sustained us, and we have not run out. We know every day at any moment of how many, based on our current burn rate, how many days we have left. Luckily today, we don't have anything that's under 10 days, uh, but we continue to source it in, in almost always in, in avenues and in, sort, in, in companies that we never have done business with before. You know, Kevin, that's been, of course, one of the complaints that we've heard over and over again in recent weeks from the federal, in terms of the federal government, that individual hospitals, states, counties are competing uh, for equipment. There doesn't seem to be any uh, process by which uh, the feds, whether it's FEMA or other federal agencies, HHS, are helping locate where protective gear is needed and uh, finding a way to provide at least some for uh, uh, local communities. And, Kevin, that's been a real issue all along in this. And to hear about it at Phoebe Putney uh, and this notion that a supply of masks that was headed for them was confiscated in New York because New York really needed them really uh, highlights the, the problem, Kevin. Yeah, and it, it's also that problem has turned political because there are those, of course, who want to blame the federal government for not managing uh, this pandemic differently, for being shorthanded in the federal stockpile. Meanwhile, um, even uh, I think the attorney general yesterday uh, in comments said that uh, he, he felt like the, it was up to the states. And some people are actually lauding that approach that the states can make their individual decisions. I, I, I mean, I don't know what the answer is, except it doesn't seem to put hospitals, especially uh, a smaller system like like the one we're talking about here, in, in a good spot. One of the other th- controversies I'd like to ask uh, our guests about um, is around the uh, – is it hydroxychloroquine? Am I saying that right? Yeah. Uh, chloroquine. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, that uh, – we have a story in the paper today about that, and it has just – it has just been at the center, and the president is very persistent in talking about that. I want to know if it's been used at your hospital and what your views are on it. Sure. I, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll be glad to, glad to uh, com- comment on that, Bill. And, and, I, and, and I do have to commend several of the physicians on our staff from the very, very onset uh, they were really trying to make sure that they were <laughs> kind of combing the medical literature in terms of what might have a beneficial effect. And so we started using the combination of hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin very, very early in um our experience here at Phoebe Putney and um, hydroxychloroquine is the kind of the, the cousin of an old anti-malarial compound that's been around for many, many years. And um, it is known to have a very advantageous effect in, in autoimmune diseases such as rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, that sort of thing. And um, so it was quickly recognized um, both in China, France, and other countries that it um, reduced the period in which viral shedding occurs. 
So we have been using the combination of those two medications. Basically, we incorporated it into what we call a care pathway. Uh, so for patients uh, who are being admitted, whether they're being admitted to a general medical unit or an intensive care unit, they're receiving the combination of those two. Now, the, the, the data is evolving all the time, but we think the, 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 the earlier in the course of disease those two drugs are given and the shorter the period of viral uh, shedding that occurs, it's going to have a more beneficial effect if it's giving, given, given earlier in the course of disease rather than uh, rather than uh, rather than uh, uh, rather than later in the course of disease. So let me do this. Um, let me interrupt. I, you know, uh, if you two don't mind, I suggested to both of you that uh, we know you're busy and we wanted to let you get back to work. But there are so many questions asked. We've got to get to a break. And both of you stay with us for uh, another 10, 15 minutes and continue. I think our listeners would really like to hear more from you. Will that work? Absolutely. Sure. Sure. That's fine. Oh, terrific. All right. Ariel Hart, Ariel Hart, Kevin Riley, uh, we'll be back with you two and uh, with the leaders uh, down at Phoebe Putney Medical Systems in just a moment. You're listening to Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Welcome back to Political Rewind. We're joined from Albany at the uh, Phoebe Putney Medical Systems uh, Hospital down there uh, by Dr. Stephen Kitchen. He's the chief medical officer. Scott Steiner, the CEO, they've been very generous with giving us their time when they continue to be very busy. Ariel Hart, health and medical reporter at the AJC, and Kevin Riley are here as well. And Ariel and Kevin, I want to get you back in here pretty quickly, but I do think there's an important question that we need to ask of our two guests, and, and that is the racial disparities that are beginning to emerge in cases of COVID-19. In the last couple of days, we've seen reporting out of the Washington Post, the New York Times, and I think you're addressing it uh, as we are here in Georgia at the AJC, we're doing it at GPB, that there seems to be a, a dis disproportionate share of African-Americans uh, with the disease. And um, we've gotten the first figures out of Georgia, as I reported at the top of the show, uh, that blacks represent about 21% of the cases here, but that 100, but 63% are unknown, so we have no real sense of all of that. But I want to turn to you, uh, uh, Scott Steiner and Dr. Kitchen, because Doherty County, I think your uh, African-American population is well over 60%. And I wonder what you can tell us about what you're seeing there in terms of disproportionate disease among African-Americans. Sure. I mean, Bill, I'll, uh, uh, again, I'll be glad to comment on that. So, you know, I, I, I think what we're seeing manifested 
right now is really, I think there are two dynamics at play. One, as you've already already referenced, if, if you look at the, the racial composition of the greater Albany community, it is predominantly African-American. So I think that's one factor at play. Unquestionably, I think the other dynamic is what we kind of refer to as the social determinants of health. And, and what we know mm-hmm. for Southwest Georgia is that, um, that, is that poverty um, um, in term, and, and the other common social determinants of health are disproportionately going to affect the population um, that we see that play out in. And uh, unfortunately, disproportionately, that also impacts the African-American community. So I will tell you, and, and it became very apparent very early that we had patterns of community transmission, and you know, it got traced back to a couple of African American uh, funerals that occurred. But what we're also um, what we're also seeing is that um, significant obesity, hypertension, and some of the other health disparities that disproportionately impact the African American community, unfortunately are putting them at risk for, um, I, 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 I think, the, the, the proportion of patients that get admitted to the critical care units and become, you know, uh, very, very ill, uh, I think we've seen that play out as well. Kevin, you want to jump in? Yeah, you know, one thing I was going to uh, was going to mention, uh, uh, and then and then kind of uh, toss something to Ariel, who has been working pretty hard on on this story and tracking some of these statistics. But in Sunday's newspaper, we'll be running a piece from uh, Dr. Lewis Sullivan, the former uh, Secretary of Health and Human Services, and in, in Atlanta, and he also cited you know some of these same concerns about uh, in, you know of where health is for much of the. African American population in the country, and he also pointed out that, uh, in his view, a higher percentage of African Americans work in lower-paying service jobs, like home care, delivery services, and other spots where you just you can't work from home, and and where they must interact more with people in order to keep working. Um, but one thing that Bill, we just have to point out, and I'd like Ariel to talk about this a little bit, is the state is not actually tracking cases by race. We've heard a lot from readers, and I'm sure you've heard from listeners, who want us to um, publish and share that information, and and we're trying to, but unlike other states where the normal collection of this data, uh, that's that's included as information and helps, I think, people understand what's going on a little bit better, Georgia is cannot supply that information as we sit here today. I'm correct about that, right, Ariel? 
Well, yeah, wait, let and, me jump in real um, quick because, wait, let me jump in. Let me jump in for a second, and then you please respond, Ariel. Tom Faust, we're gonna, I, I'm going to need you to give us a sense of where these figures that we reported and the percentage of African Americans come from, if not from the state. I, I don't want to be giving out information to our listeners if we don't know the source of it and the accuracy of it. So uh, having, having heard what Kevin just said, I'd love to hear where that information came from. Go ahead, Ariel. Yeah, well, so it, it's, it's just been a real struggle. Um, and it's not just Georgia. There, there are some states that do a good job of uh, tracking that, but it just hasn't been a priority. And you can really see the damage that's done from not having that information. Now, um, you have to note that that state health leaders have um, – taken notice of that problem. They've been asked about it, and they say they're working on it. And Dr. Toomey said in a press conference yesterday, I believe, that they were working on standing up some more information on that. But um, it's, just been, it's just been such a struggle to actually get that information. And when you look at the stories that have been done in some of the national outlets that um, really did a great job of kicking off the issue... They have had to reach for places that have that data, and um, a big help was the mayor of Chicago actually coming out and saying, these are our statistics, and they are not proportionate to the population of this area. So, by the way, uh, uh, Tom Faust just tells me that the figures that we uh, told you about do come from the Department of Public Health. So perhaps they're beginning to make some effort at getting uh, racial breakdowns out here. The fact that they don't, the fact that they don't know what 63 percent of the population looks like, though, tells us that uh, they have a long way to go in uh, getting to the bottom of all that. Uh, Ariel, do you have another question for, uh, or for, or Kevin? Um. Well, I, I certainly do. One question I have is: Do you, as a system, know what percent? of your COVID patients are African-American. Yeah, so Ariel, this is Scott. Uh, so we are working on that, that information. I think that, you know, we, to Dr. Kitchen's point, we do know this has affected the African-American uh, community great in greater numbers than, than any other. Um, we're, uh, we are in, in uh, partnership with the state in a lot of different ways. They have provided us supplies. They're working on a surge plan down here. We're, very thankful to for, to the governor and Dr. Toomey for that, but I think that the issue with the data, and I'm not here to explain it away, but you've got however many hospitals and health systems, uh, public health agencies, physician offices, because what we report is what Phoebe Putney does, but I can't tell you how many tests and what the information is coming from the private doctor's offices or from the local FQHC or from an urgent care center or from an, uh, a surgery center. So everybody's got their own IT systems. Every hospital has a different system. Maybe it's uh, Epic or, or Cerner or Meditech. So I think it's how do you consolidate all that information just to even say how many positives, how many negatives, and how many deaths, and then how do you get into it? What's the age? What's the race? What's the, what's the, what's the sex? What, where do they live? How do we heat map this? So I think it, it, it's, it's quite complicated. It shouldn't be, and I think that's a, a learning for us is that information has to be ready at, mo at moment's notice. And I know that's one of been one of our struggles is to just get our hands around the data because there's so much of it 
that it's how do you report it out in a way that people can understand and it's digestible. And if there's one more thing that you wanted to say to leaders or the public, um, we talk a lot about the PPE that um, everyone is running short of. Is there anything else that you are concerned about that you need? I'm wondering about staff. I'm wondering about the drugs that it takes to intubate people. Anything else that um, you would want to put out there? Yeah, that's right. You just touched on probably the three biggest ones we're, we're talking about today is access to faster testing. Too much of the testing is still taking four, five, six, seven, sometimes ten days. So we're we're trying to access the the quicker testing, uh, the the pharmaceuticals. Um, this is this this disease and and what we're doing is like squeezing the balloon. Just when you think you've got one thing figured out, boom! Guess what? There's a shortage of is fentanyl. And what do you use fentanyl for? You use it to intubate patients to to, to uh, you know, to, to be able to do that from a, a, a physiology standpoint. And then staffing, you know, uh, we've, been, we've had that partnership with the state. They've helped us with getting some urgent staffing in, critical care nurses, physicians, others. But we have also seen some of our nurses uh, that, that were uh, not necessarily from our area, but who were agency nurses that we had contracted with leaving and going to other cities where they're getting offers of two or three times the amount uh, of pay that is available for them in their current contract. So, you know, this this competition is not only just in supplies, it's now for for uh, that, that vital health care worker. It's like a lot uh, you know, yeah, of uh, Yeah, it's interesting, uh, Kevin Riley, that uh, you all had a story on the front page of the paper today saying that there were, uh, talking about a Southwest Airlines flight, a photograph of medical personnel from uh, the Atlanta area, all uh, uh, flying up to New York to work in uh, hospitals, healthcare centers there, medical centers there, uh, because they were going to, uh, they wanted to work and help, but they were also getting a much bigger paycheck. Um, we are on the verge of having to take another break. Before we do, and and um, and 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 uh, thank. Uh, Scott Steiner and Stephen Kitchen from being with us. Kevin, you give you a chance for one last question. Well, I, I should be clarify too, Bill. Uh, my comment about uh, uh, the, the statistics regarding race that those numbers became available from the state. I think either early today or late yesterday. They ju- that was the first time yeah. that they were available. So, yeah. I, for your listeners, just to be clear, okay. to this point we hadn't seen them, and and I don't think we've been able. Our folks, at least, have been able to ask a lot of questions about questions about how uh, how they've been compiled. Um, I, I'm I'm interested, uh, Scott. I mean, from the point of view of uh, all the media attention that you've got. I mean, we've seen stories, uh, you know, after we came down and, and really did a thorough look at how things were going at the hospital in Albany. Then you heard from I think just about all the big ones: New York Times, Washington Post. Um, what has that been like for you to suddenly become in some ways, the epicenter of Georgia uh, coverage. Yeah, it's um, yeah, it's, it's something we never envisioned. It's it's a contest we never wanted to win. Uh, we never even wanted to be in. Uh, but you know what we recognized from the beginning, whether it was when we, when we were looking at our mask shortage, and we were having people sew masks, is how could we get this story out because. Uh, of the urgency because of the need to protect our people. And, and so that's been our intent is to tell the story of, 
of shortages because what we don't want is small urban or rural America to be get, to be forgotten. Um, I under, we understand the importance of New York and and, and Los Angeles and and the big cities. Uh, there's there, we're not saying gee give it to us instead of them, but what we were adamant about was we. We take seriously caring for our communities at all times, and in the time of a pandemic, who do they look for, look to? And it's us, and and we take pride in that. And so we were we're making sure we bang that drum that to say, hey, we need those same supplies, we need those same medications, we need those same expert experts, and uh, because the people that we have, I've been calling them, they're they're warriors. They run into the fight, they run into the fire every time, to Dr. Kitchen's point. They strap on that PPE that is so terribly uncomfortable to do, and they go in and they do it every day because they love our community, and it's, it's, their, it's their calling in life. And so that, that's been what, what I've been trying to focus on is telling their story, telling the story of our patients and our community. And uh, nothing that I ever thought I would do. Uh, but hopefully by doing it, we've been able to bring resources maybe we wouldn't have had before and attention uh, and, and celebration. And I, we've seen that across the country, and we've got an incredible community here who has rallied around the hospital, around our first responders. And it, there, it's so much the silver lining in all this, and it, and it, it just I want to make sure it's told. Well, Scott Steiner and Dr. Stephen Kitchen, we really appreciate your being with us uh, on Political Rewind today, and we uh, send you our best thoughts and uh, hopes for your ability to continue dealing in the most positive way possible with the um, pandemic in uh, southwest Georgia. Thanks so very much for joining us. Let's do this. Let's take a brief break, and we'll be back with more on Political Rewind. We're back on Political Rewind. Ariel Hart, Kevin Riley of the AJC are with me. Um, before we turn a little more uh, specifically to politics, uh, Tom Faust has uh, figures that uh, have been reported by the Doherty County Coroner, Michael Fowler, that do give us some insights about racial uh, breakdowns and important uh, data. Uh, there have been 63 deaths uh, in Doherty County. 23, uh, according to the coroner, were black males. 23 were black females, 11 white females, 6 white males. Uh, It tells you about the preponderance of African-Americans who have gotten the disease, although, again, Doherty County is a uh, largely uh, majority black uh, uh, community. Uh, So it would be understandable if there are more uh, blacks who have contracted the virus, but we also know about the disparities in health care. All right, um, let's do this. Uh, Ariel and uh, Kevin, let's move on and talk a little bit about politics. Uh, Kevin, I want to turn to you first. We know that Bernie Sanders yesterday finally decided it was time to drop out of the uh, Democratic presidential race. Let's listen to how he described his decision, and then we'll talk about it. But as I see the crisis gripping the nation, exacerbated by a president unwilling or unable to provide any kind of credible leadership and the work that needs to be done to protect people in this most desperate hour, I cannot in good conscience continue to mount a campaign that cannot win and which would interfere with the important work required of all of us in this difficult hour. So, Kevin, uh, 
Joe Biden becomes the presumptive nominee of the Democratic Party. Uh, and what's interesting, of course, is uh, we already know that our primary contest here in terms of the presidential race is going to be much less uh, meaningful than at one point it might have been. Uh, now, uh, the big question, it'll be interesting to see whether voters turn out at all, whether it's by absentee ballot or in person, to uh, to vote for Joe Biden. We'll, you know, we'll get some sense of uh, how much energy he can build build here uh, to get a big turnout in his behalf. Right. I, I do think that's a big question, Bill, particularly in Georgia, but also uh, the Democrats had a presumptive nominee really early on last time, and we know we know what happened there. I also thought it was interesting listening to uh, Bernie Sanders, um, who did not, you know, did not endorse Biden in his statement from 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 what I understand and have read. And then second, no, he didn't. He, You're right. He will remain on ballots as this goes forward, and was clear he expects to exert a lot of influence on whatever the Democratic platform turns out to be. So um, I think those who believe he should keep disrupting may be heartened by that. And those who believe he's had his day and he should quiet down and, 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 and help the Democrats uh, figure out how to beat President Trump might be a little worried. You know, Ariel, I want to bring you into this conversation because uh, we know that his showcase issue, Bernie Sanders' showcase issue, of course, has been Medicare for all. Um, and so there's two aspects of that that are kind of interesting to talk about right now. Uh, number one, since the pandemic struck, Bernie Sanders, before dropping out of the race, was, uh, was saying to people, Medicare for all is more important than ever. I kind of told you so. Now we see why we need a national health care system. But also of importance is the fact that when Joe Biden yesterday uh, thanked Bernie Sanders for his participation in the race, said he had a lot of great ideas that he himself would embrace, he specifically was not going to embrace Medicare for all. But give us your thoughts on whether national health care suddenly becomes a much more prominent issue in the presidential race this fall. Um, I think health care is going to be a much more prominent issue. Um, you know, there's always going to be a constituency that was raised by um, by Bernie and by Elizabeth Warren for national health care. But you just don't have the two leading candidates who uh, have any interest in making that happen now. But I think what you may have is um, – that Biden did kind of tip his hat to the policies um, that Sanders had uh, advocated for. And so he he may have kind of moved the conversation a little bit leftward. We'll have to wait and see. Did we lose you? Uh, I think maybe no, we I lost. Was, uh, uh, are you there? Yeah, I, I just kind of feel like the answer to the question is that um, – you know, there seems to be little chance at this point that Medicare for all is going to be um, some kind of a big push from any of the candidates left. But at least you will, I think, have a nod to the uh, the voters who would have advocated for that. And you'll have some kind of bigger push for broad health care coverage, whatever uh, 
uh, form that ends up taking. Yeah, but we shouldn't forget, of course, that there is still a lawsuit uh, filed by attorneys general in any number of states, including here, Chris Carr, uh, that's making its way through the courts that would overturn uh, uh, the Affordable Care Act entirely, even as a presidential race, will uh, make health care one of the top issues. Right, Ariel? Yeah, and Democrats are pushing that as much as they can. They're they're trying to raise that issue and keep it in the news at every possible turn. Um, it, you know, it it's going to get taken up by the court, and you could see uh, in the wake of this pandemic a massive overturning of the healthcare system that we've come to know over the last ten years. Um, Kevin, I, let me. Br- bring you in on, on another question that, that really is political in nature. We had a conversation about this on the show yesterday, but given that you're the editor of a major daily newspaper, it'd be interesting to hear your uh, thoughts on this. Um, we know that, that President Trump has chosen to make the daily uh, coronavirus briefing kind of a showcase for his uh, thoughts, his ideas, Uh, giving reports on updates of what's happening out there. And there's been some criticism uh, that that electronic news organizations, uh, cable news networks, for instance, are giving him a forum that uh, allows him to uh, give out misinformation, contradict himself repeatedly. And there's been a concern that perhaps he shouldn't be getting all of this airtime some, and some people would suggest it reminds them of 2016 when the cable networks covered his rallies uh, start to finish night after night because they thought they were such uh, high entertainment. Uh, as the editor of a major newspaper, how do you look at that? Well, I can tell you this. I'm glad that uh, as an, I'm not running a network and trying to figure out what to do there because um, – we at least can step back and really report the accuracy of his statements in a way that wise people can, I think, reach their own conclusions about about what's going on. But it, I think it's a it's a hard thing because during a time like this, I think the nation wants to hear from the president, and I think a lot of people are getting their information that way. But without question. Uh, he contradicts himself within, I mean, if you watch those things, he will say one thing and then deny he said it, and he will change his mind, and he will say something that was different from the day before. Um, you have to hope that wise people can make their own decisions about what's going on there. And it, as you know, his approval rating in the end sort of stays at that 35 to 45% range, no matter what happens. Um. Kevin, I'm going to interrupt because we are running out of time. You get the last word in today's show. Um, so, Kevin Riley, Ariel Hart, thank you so much for joining us. It was great to have Dr. Stephen Kitchens and Scott Steiner from uh, Phoebe Putney in southwest Georgia on the show today as well. Uh, we're back tomorrow with the show. We're going to take a look at the hospitality industry and uh, restaurant workers and how they've been affected by coronavirus We'll do all that and more on our next Political Rewind. See you tomorrow.